Everyone, in honor of Small Business Saturday, we're featuring watercolor artist Jordan Hom and her awesome collection of amazing handcrafted and hand-painted art, all sold through her online shop called The Feral Fern. So, if you're looking for a truly unique gift this holiday season, she's got a lot of cool stuff on her shop featuring her very distinct, unique outdoor watercolor painting, including hand-painted watercolor cards, camping mugs, clay earrings and ornaments, stickers, and probably my absolute favorite, handcrafted leather bookmarks. I'm obsessed. I've bought just about every one she's put out. So, if you're a little feral and into nature like me, and you're looking for that truly one-of-a-kind gift this season, Support the Feral Fern Shop on Etsy. Just click the link in the show notes or go to etsy.com slash shop slash the Feral Fern Co. And as a special just for Invisible Choir listeners, use code INVISIBLE20 at checkout for 20% off your order. That's INVISIBLE20. Shop small this holiday season with the Feral Fern. Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm shocked. I mean, you know, what would have provoked something like that? It's hard to believe, you know? It really is. On the night of Wednesday, April 20th, 2022, family members of 67-year-old Stephen Reed became worried after he missed his weekly tennis match that day. It wasn't like Stephen to just skip out on scheduled plans. In fact, no one had heard from him or his wife, 66-year-old Jez Wendy, who was better known as Wendy in the last two days. And during that time, all phone calls to Stephen and Wendy went unanswered. According to the family, they spoke with Stephen briefly via text message on Monday, April 18th, when a group of loved ones asked if he and Wendy cared to join them for a walk. Stephen respectfully declined, stating that he and his wife already had plans that day. They were going to go do a walk themselves, kind of, it sounded like, more locally to avoid ticks, because Wendy hated ticks. After the discussion on that walk, there was no other contact. Before long, concerned family members arrived at the Alton Woods apartment complex off Loudon Road in Concord, New Hampshire, where the couple lived. After speaking with the property manager, they were able to gain entry to the apartment. Initially, nothing seemed out of the ordinary. The bed was made and there were no signs of distress. But then they noticed Stephen's wallet was there, along with two cell phones. Outside of the apartment, both of their vehicles were parked in their usual spots. Family members racked their brains, trying to think of where the couple might be. Then they remembered that Concord's broken ground trail system was right next to the couple's home. Stephen and Wendy were known to frequent these trails, particularly a section called the Marsh Loop. The thought of them possibly taking a casual walk through the woods and not returning was an unsettling one to consider, and as more time passed, their worries only grew. The missing couple's loved ones then decided to create a post on Neighbors, a cell phone application created by the company Ring, which allows community members to update one another of things happening in their neighborhood. Through the app, a photo of Stephen and Wendy was uploaded, along with the request for any possible Ring camera footage that may have captured the Reed's last known movements. At 6.20 p.m. that night, Stephen's sister Susan decided she had waited long enough and decided to call the New Hampshire State Police. 
just realized that something was terribly wrong. So I knew that I had to report them missing. Interestingly enough, Susan was a former state lieutenant and New Hampshire police detective herself. She knew that precious time had already passed with regard to finding her brother and his wife, therefore calling her former colleagues at the state level with the most canine resources was the best course of action. When troopers arrived at the Alton Woods apartment complex, they were greeted by Stephen and Wendy's family. After learning about the Marsh Loop Trail not far from the apartment, Backup units, both state and local, arrived shortly thereafter to help scour the entire area. It had rained heavily the night before, and the initial search of the woods didn't commence until just before sundown. At around 9.30 p.m. that Wednesday evening, officers stumbled upon a small encampment. Using their flashlights, they spotted a rather skinny man in his late 20s or early 30s occupying the space, he had a tent set up not far off the main trail. The officers approached and informed him that they were looking for a missing couple in their 60s and asked if he'd seen anyone matching the Reed's description. But he said he hadn't. He said that he left his tent in the morning, returned in the afternoon, had not seen anybody. And he indicated to me that he was kind of just staying there for the night, passing through. He said he was either coming from or from Massachusetts, and that he was just camping there uh, for the night, hadn't seen anyone else. Authorities weren't sure if the man was camping recreationally or if he was homeless. He was clean-shaven, and despite the abundance of empty Mountain Dew Code Red cans scattered around his campsite, it didn't appear as though he had been in this location for very long. Police then asked the man his name, to which he replied, Arthur Kelly. The man also provided his date of birth, January 27, 1992. One of the officers then radioed dispatch and attempted to run his information, but there was no Arthur Kelly in their system. Authorities then requested another search be done on the name Arthur Kelly, this time in the state of Massachusetts, where the man claimed he was from. But yet again, no results came back. When police informed him there was no Arthur Kelly in either system, he became defiant and was suddenly no longer interested in continuing the conversation. He didn't believe he was doing anything wrong. He was just camping and he didn't want to have any further interaction with the police. The detective explained to the man that he wasn't in trouble, finding it odd that he was so reluctant to speak with them. I told him that uh, we weren't investigating him for any criminal acts at, at the time. We were just looking for two missing people. I explained to him I found it suspicious he was being uncooperative when I was just trying to look for uh, missing people. This camper clearly wasn't interested in helping and refused to answer any more questions. Eventually, law enforcement chose to depart from the man's tent site and continued on with their search late into the evening. Just before midnight, the search was called off and postponed until the following morning. At approximately 11.57 p.m. on April 20th, Stephen and Wendy Reed were officially entered into the missing persons police database. New Hampshire State Police are looking for a missing couple who were last seen on Sunday. Police say Stephen Reed and his wife, Joendi, last spoke with family and friends on Monday. A family member reported the pair missing. Well, yesterday, when Stephen did not arrive at a planned event and the couple's vehicles are parked in their usual places, but they are nowhere to be found. Investigators say there is no known history of domestic violence. If you have any information, contact Conquered police. 
The following day on Thursday, April 21st, there was still no sign of Wendy or Stephen. Back at their residence, a detective realized that of the two cell phones discovered the night before, neither belonged to Stephen Reed. Authorities then contacted Google to submit an emergency data request, hoping to learn Stephen's last known location via his cell phone and email accounts. At 5.10 that evening, detectives received that information back from Google. It showed that his phone left his residence days before at 2.42 p.m. on Monday, April 18th. The GPS showed Stephen's device arriving at the entrance of the Marsh Loop Trail just a few minutes later. His phone next pinged about an hour later at 3.47, further on into the woods this time along the walking path. The vast team of law enforcement and canine units then made their way back out to the damp woods to retrace Stephen's steps using the new recorded data. Just after 6 p.m. on Thursday evening, one of the dogs finally caught a scent that led authorities to a small embankment just off the trail, where they noticed something unusual. We came across um, a mound of leaves and dirt and sticks with uh, what appeared to be a white powder over it on top of the leaves. As they moved closer, detectives noticed something protruding from the brush. We could kind of observe through the mound what appeared to be hair, so we slowly uh, delayered the mound to either confirm or not confirm what we believed we were looking at. It was at this point a heartbreaking discovery was made. And as we delayered the mound, uh, we confirmed what we saw uh, was human hair. Hidden beneath layers of twigs, pine needles, and dirt lay the bodies of the missing couple in their late 60s, Stephen and Wendy Reed, victims of an apparent double homicide, roughly 40 feet off the trail and less than a half mile from their home. Family first reported the couple missing on Wednesday. Their bodies found Thursday night. No arrests have been made, and police have not said whether this attack is random or targeted. Stephen Reed was born in March of 1955 to Peggy Ann and William Reed of Concord, New Hampshire. Only a few months later, yet a world and a half away, Wendy was born in February of 1956 in Benin, West Africa. Growing up, education was highly regarded in both Stephen and Wendy's families, as were sports. Wendy fell in love with a game of basketball, so much so that she ended up traveling internationally with the Togo national basketball team for a time. Though Stephen was smaller than most his age and prioritized his schoolwork more than anything, he'd go on to play cornerback for his varsity football team at Concord High, where he ended up setting the record for most interceptions in a game with a total of three. After graduating high school, Stephen went on to study at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. He graduated in 1978 with high honors and his bachelor's degree in English. He then studied for the LSAT with an intent to attend law school and excelled with several scholarship offers from various law schools following his exam. However, Stephen decided against that route and instead enlisted in the Peace Corps. Early on into this new venture, he traveled to Niger in West Africa, where he taught English. A few years later, Stephen came back to the U.S. in 1982 and earned a position as a liaison for the Peace Corps headquarters in Washington, D.C. It was around this same time that Wendy was earning her scholarship to attend college in the U.S., 
When she arrived in America, she was able to make friends easily. However, the language barrier was a challenge. During her undergraduate studies, a friend had told Wendy about a man they knew in the area who spoke Hausa, Wendy's native language. Naturally, Wendy was intrigued and looked forward to meeting the man she'd soon come to know as Stephen Reed. When the two were introduced, Wendy was impressed with Stephen's ability to speak several languages, including Parisian French. They hit it off right away, became friends, and started spending more and more time with one another. According to those who knew them, Stephen was introverted, whereas Wendy was the opposite. When Stephen attempted to get to know Wendy in a romantic way, it was actually her friends who had to fill her in. The love between Stephen and Wendy eventually blossomed, and after two years of dating, it was clear they were meant for each other. In 1984, they were married in Senegal, West Africa. After a celebration surrounded by loved ones, the newlyweds returned to the United States, more specifically, to Stephen's hometown of Concord, New Hampshire, which is where they decided to lay their roots. Just two years after they married, Stephen and Wendy welcomed their first child, Lindsay, into the world, and in 1990, their second, Brian. Although Stephen climbed the ranks within the Peace Corps and had been promoted to the associate director in Senegal by this point, he felt a calling to return to school. So he eventually left the Peace Corps and enrolled at Syracuse University and earned his master's degree in public administration. Shortly after obtaining his degree, Stephen was recruited by the U.S. Agency for International Development. His first assignment brought the Reed family to Burkina Faso in West Africa. Over the next several decades, Stephen continued his work with USAID and became the chief of party, working on agency projects in Bangladesh, Burkina Faso, Liberia, Niger, Senegal, as well as Haiti. During their time in West Africa, Wendy attended the Dakar campus of Suffolk University and received a bachelor's degree in business administration, having graduated magna cum laude in 2003. While the couple was extremely passionate about their international humanitarian work, they'd worked long and hard at it for over 30 years. In 2019, Stephen and Wendy both retired and moved back to Concord, New Hampshire to spend more time with their family. Sadly, all of their plans for retirement were tragically cut short after what should have been a brief stroll through the woods along the Marsh Loop Trail. The news of their deaths was devastating, not only for the Reed family, but also the tight-knit community of Concord. According to city officials, this was the first double homicide the city had seen in roughly 40 years. These senseless murders left many wondering, who would do something so evil to two people who dedicated their entire lives to doing so much good for the world? This episode is proudly sponsored by Rocket Money. Okay, so Rocket Money comes through for the win again. I recently got a notification stating that I had this new recurring charge on my account, some type of meditation and yoga video subscription channel that I or my wife most definitely did not sign up for. And all it took to cancel it was the click of a button using Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. 
And listen, I know all too well that it's so easy to subscribe to a free trial of something and then completely forget about it once you stop using it. In fact, over 80% of people have subscriptions they've forgotten about, and some don't even catch them after the charges start coming in each month. That's why I'm such a big fan of Rocket Money and why I love their recurring charges, features, and notifications. So, stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions and manage your money the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash invisible. That's rocketmoney.com slash invisible. rocketmoney.com slash invisible. This episode is also proudly brought to you by Warby Parker. Hey guys, Warby Parker offers everything you need for happier eyes. Eyeglasses, sunglasses, contact lenses, and eye exams. And you can shop with them online or in stores. I love them because the glasses are affordable and unique. They start at just $95, including prescription lenses. And you can try Warby Parker's free home try-on program. We order five pairs of glasses to try on at home for free. There's no obligation to buy. It ships free and includes a prepaid return shipping label. That's what I did. I ended up choosing the Percy Wide and Jet Black Matte Finish, and I love them. Not only are they super comfortable to the point I literally forget that they're on, I've started getting a lot of compliments, including from my cousin Tina, who I haven't seen in a while recently, and she said, I love your glasses. They actually compliment the shape of your face, which I've never had anyone comment on my glasses before. So this is new territory for me, but I can't take these things off. They're super comfortable, and the process was so easy. Again, you can try on five pairs of glasses at home for free at warbyparker.com slash choir. That's warbyparker.com slash choir. The day after Stephen and Wendy's bodies were discovered, the state attorney general's office held a press conference to provide the public with an update in the case. Autopsies were conducted today by Deputy Chief Medical Examiner Mitchell Weinberg. Dr. Weinberg determined that the cause of Stephen Reed's death was multiple gunshot wounds, and the manner of his death was homicide. The cause of Wendy Reed's death was also multiple gunshot wounds, and the manner of her death was also homicide. The medical examiner concluded that Stephen Reed had been shot a total of four times. Somehow, two of the bullets had exited and re-entered his body leaving him with wounds to his left wrist, left arm, left shoulder, head, chest, and the center of his back. Wendy was shot twice, once in the neck and once in the head, a bullet which penetrated her skull and represented the fatal wound. Stephen Reed's cell phone was never actually recovered, but if it wasn't for the digital records provided by Google, there's no telling whether or not the bodies would have ever been found. They had been covered well, and it was obvious the killer had taken a sufficient amount of time to conceal the bodies beneath the brush and leaves, perhaps even returning to the crime scene after the murders. Investigators quickly realized that the Reeds were not killed in the exact location their bodies were found. The autopsy revealed abrasions to their torsos, and their clothing was bunched, indicating that the Reeds were more than likely shot while walking the Marsh Loop hiking trail before being dragged deeper into the woods, where they were eventually found three days later. Bullet fragments were also recovered from both bodies, and it was believed that these projectiles either came from a 380 caliber round or a 9mm. However, the medical examiner couldn't be sure. While trying to come to grips with her brother's murder, Stephen's sister Susan 
questioned whether this double murder may have been in some way work-related. She wondered if the killer was perhaps a refugee living in Concord and was someone Stephen and Wendy had possibly interacted with in the past while working abroad. The more she considered this possibility, though, the more unlikely it became. Stephen and Wendy had no enemies, and their entire lives were spent helping others, which made this crime all that much more difficult to comprehend. On Friday, April 22nd, the day after their bodies were found, detectives revisited the Marsh Loop Trail again, at which point they made several more evidentiary discoveries, including coagulated blood on the trail itself. A ripped piece of women's clothing recovered from a nearby stump was also later determined to have been Wendy's. There was also a discarded pill bottle and bullet fragments not far from the scene, both of which had Wendy's blood on them. All of these items were found roughly 80 feet from the victim's bodies, reaffirming to investigators that the main trail was the actual murder site and that Wendy and Stephen's bodies had been dragged about 25 yards deeper into the woods. While this new evidence was being gathered, detectives continued walking the woodline, hoping to speak with any hikers or potential witnesses, including Arthur Kelly, the young transient they'd met camping just two nights before. Unfortunately, when detectives arrived at his camp about a half mile from the crime scene, he was already gone. The man had packed up and taken his tent as well. The area he'd been staying on was completely cleared. In fact, the camp was spotless, which was strange considering the somewhat lived-in camp authorities came across less than 48 hours before. It was at this point they remembered those littered soda cans, the Mountain Dew Code Red ones. And due to what little information they had gathered, investigators chose to dub this mysterious individual MDM, or Mountain Dew Man. In the meantime, they began working to find out who this wayward traveler actually was, starting with the one small lead they had. Detectives figured that whoever he was, he'd more than likely purchased that Mountain Dew Code Red from a nearby local Walmart, which was located just across the street from where he was camping days before. With the help of several Walmart employees, detectives recovered surveillance footage that showed the individual who had previously identified himself as Arthur Kelly. The man caught on video was seen purchasing Mountain Dew Code Red with cash at a self-checkout station. He was of slender build and stood just shy of six feet tall. The footage then showed him exiting the store just before 3 p.m. on April 20th, seven hours before police would first make contact with him deep in the woods. In addition, he was wearing a black leather baseball cap, along with dark pants, boots, and a black backpack. He also had a bandana wrapped around his face. Given that this was during the global pandemic, Mountain Dew Man had a more socially acceptable excuse to wear that sort of face covering, making it far more difficult for authorities to identify him. Police soon learned that that very same man also purchased a four-person tent back in November of 2021, indicating that he may have in fact been homeless and living on the land for several months. While investigators continued pursuing this new lead, Concord police asked for the public's help, requesting that anyone with information come forward. Shortly thereafter, a local woman notified authorities. She said that she'd been walking her dogs on the Marsh Loop Trail the same day the Reeds were killed, 
and also claimed to have seen them. According to the witness, she began her hike at around 2.45 p.m. on Monday, April 18th. She told detectives that just a few minutes later, she witnessed an older white male and black female approaching her at a faster pace. As a courtesy, the woman moved her dogs to the side and let the couple pass. She said the pair were appropriately dressed for hiking and casually talking to one another during their walk. According to the witness, that interaction took place at around 2.50 p.m. Then at 2.54 p.m., the woman said she entered the same section of the trail that Stephen and Wendy had just gone down ahead of her minutes earlier. However, just as she approached the area, she heard what she believed to be five gunshots ring out off in the distance. First thought was, I don't think it's hunting season. I didn't think there should be any hunting, and I didn't have any orange on me or the dogs. But then I thought, wait, it's April. Shouldn't be hunting now, as far as I knew. My next thought was, I've been watching too much awful TV. Ironically, the hiker tried to convince herself that there was nothing to worry about, and that whatever fear she felt in that moment was due to consuming too much true crime content on television. She explained to detectives that even though the loud bangs startled her and her dogs, they continued along on their walk, headed in the same direction. Moments later, she noticed another man about 30 to 50 yards ahead of her, standing just to the side of the trail, staring blindly off into the woods. I did think he doesn't look like the normal, whatever that means, hiker or walker on this trail. As she continued to walk toward the man, he suddenly turned his attention toward her and then back to the woods. He continued to look into the woods for a while. He appeared to be staring, not scanning. His head was not moving. He was just staring straight ahead. And as I came fairly close, within five to ten yards, he turned to look at me. According to the witness, the two passed each other on the trail seconds later, and no words were exchanged. After some much-appreciated distance was created between them, the man turned around one last time as the hiker walking her dogs hurried out of the woods. When detectives asked her to provide a physical description of the man, she said he looked like a, quote, street person and or was homeless. She said the man was white and appeared to be in his late 20s to early 30s, was clean-shaven and stood roughly 5 foot 10 inches tall with a slender build. She also said he was wearing a dark blue jacket, khaki pants, and a black backpack around his shoulders. He was also carrying some type of brown plastic grocery bag that appeared to be of some weight. More importantly, she established that she didn't see the man holding any sort of weapon. Also, he didn't seem out of breath or like he was in a rush, and she didn't witness or see any signs of the two people being dragged off the trail. But authorities also interviewed another man who was walking the trail around that very same time a man who also claimed to have heard several gunshots the afternoon of April 18th. He told police that toward the end of his hike, he noticed four shell casings in the dirt and looked around but didn't see anyone. Days after the reeds were found dead, those four shell casings were already gone. On April 25th, 2022, detectives set up hunting cameras near the crime scene to see if the killer might return. Images from the game cameras did record someone in that location on three different occasions. 
However, investigators were unable to determine who this person was. And although Concord police still hadn't found the killer, they assured the local community that solving the murders of Stephen and Wendy Reed was of their highest priority. Unfortunately, this wasn't exactly reassuring to those living in the surrounding area. That's horrible. My sister's scared to walk uh, the talk at night now. She's thinking about getting a taser. Authorities received countless tips following the release of a police sketch of the suspect. However, none led to an arrest or even a name. Just after a month after Stephen and Wendy Reed were gunned down on a hiking trail behind their home, detectives drove out to the Marsh Loop Trail on ATVs for yet another scan of the crime scene. And on May 20th, 2022, investigators located two shell casings, which were discovered about five feet from where police believed the shooting initially occurred. Both casings were marked with the words Sig Luger 9mm on the bottom of the shell, ammunition that was consistent with the type of round the medical examiner said may have killed the reeds. These shell casings were then bagged as evidence and sent off to the New Hampshire State Police Forensics Lab for testing. While this was a crucial discovery, Stephen and Wendy Reed's killer was still at large. Police are still investigating and have opened an anonymous tip line at the number you would see on your screen in just a second. There is a cash reward for information leading to an arrest. This episode is proudly brought to you by StoryWorth. Everyone, this holiday season, if you're looking to give a gift to loved ones that makes them feel special and unique, consider giving them StoryWorth. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve precious memories and stories for years to come. Here's how it works. Every week, StoryWorth emails your relative or friend a thought-provoking question of your choice from their vast pool of possible options. Each unique prompt asks questions you've never thought to ask, like, what's the bravest thing you've done in your life? Or if you could see into the future, what would you want to find out? After one year, StoryWorth compiles all of your loved ones' stories, including photographs they upload, into a beautiful keepsake book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. Now, last year, I sent this to my mother-in-law, Barb, and the response has been incredible. I actually finally got both copies of the book in the mail that I ordered, one for each of my daughters. And the title is Stories from Grandma Barb. It's something they're going to be able to take with them and keep with them for a lifetime. It's got so many incredible photographs and amazing stories that neither my wife nor I had ever heard before. Like the time Grandma Barb was homecoming queen her senior year in high school. With StoryWorth, I am giving those I love most a thoughtful, personal gift from the heart and preserving their memories and stories for years to come. Go to StoryWorth.com slash invisible and save $10 on your first purchase. That's StoryWorth.com slash invisible to save $10 on your first purchase. This episode is also proudly brought to you by Honey Love. Hey, I'm thankful for a lot this year, including for Honey Love, because there is nothing worse than suffering from an uncomfortable bra or shapewear. And look, I should know, my wife is blessed with regard to her shape, to put it bluntly. And she's constantly looking for a more comfortable bra that she can forget she's wearing and that stays cool and comfortable after a long day at the office or chasing around our twin daughters. I recently got her one of Honey Love's best-selling crossover bras and she loves it. She said it's so comfortable, it's her new go-to. In fact, the bra gives her all the support of traditional bras without using any underwires. So it doesn't look like she's smuggling a banana on her back because it's gotten rid of the bulging. 
Honey Love's bras are designed with back smoothing fabric to prevent that bra bulge. They've even got a V-neck bra for a totally smooth fit under clothing. Like it's the ultimate t-shirt bra. So treat yourself to the best bras and shapewear on the market and save up to 60% off site-wide at honeylove.com slash choir this month only. Inventory is limited and the sale ends soon, so don't miss their best deals of the year. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Please support our show by telling them we send you. It's time to ditch the underwire for good, thanks to Honey Love. Go to honeylove.com slash choir and save up to 60% off site-wide this month only. Time continued to pass with no new information made available. From the end of May into early July of 2022, detectives received over 200 tips from residents living in the area of the Marsh Loop Trail. And the newfound surge of interest in the case might have had something to do with the reward money that was being offered, which seemed to be increasing by the day. By the end of that summer, the reward had reached an astonishing $50,000, 15000 of which was raised by anonymous donors. The influx of calls continued ringing off the hooks at the Concord Police Station. Aside from the one hiker walking her dogs, each sighting of the homeless man seemed to occur well before the murders, but none after. Some of the tips were more valuable than others. Witness accounts varied from a man carrying grocery bags and Amazon packages through the woods to one woman who claimed she saw the elusive Mountain Dew man screaming to himself out on the trails. Lucky for her, she chose to avoid the man, believing he was suffering some type of mental health crisis. Almost everyone who saw this individual provided police with the same physical description, and those who came just a little too close to the man all said the same thing, that he was very unfriendly. One report that gave detectives potential insight into their suspect's temperament came from another person walking the Marsh Loop Trail. On April 14, 2022, seven days before the Reeds were found deceased, a woman called Concord Police. She said that she drove to the Marsh Loop Trail's parking lot to retrieve a bag of dog waste she had left there earlier in the day, when she witnessed a man standing next to a nearby pond. She said that the tall, slender man was just standing there, awkwardly looking off into the water. And after parking her car, the woman said she looked in her rearview mirror only to see the man was now walking toward her. Not knowing what the stranger planned to do next, she tried to back out and drive away, but by that point, he was already standing directly behind her vehicle. Thankfully, she was able to safely leave the premises without further incident, but given that there were children in the area at the time, she decided to call 911. Unfortunately, by the time police arrived on scene, the man was gone. Another individual reported that from January to mid-April of 2022, he witnessed a tent in the woods that had survived most of the snowy New Hampshire winter. On April 15th, the day after the parking lot incident and only three days before the Reeds were killed, the man decided to report this potential homeless encampment that had become an eyesore for months. When authorities arrived at the camp, they found a padlock securing a closed tent. Officers couldn't see inside, but it was evident that this was someone's long-term residence. 
The occupant of the site wasn't home, and the camp was relatively clean, with a pair of boots placed neatly outside of the tent door. Police ultimately left the scene, not realizing they'd likely return to that very camp just five days later, only to find it in much different condition. On April 20th, 2022, a different citizen called Concord Police to report the very same campsite, only this time they reported that it had burnt down. When authorities arrived, they saw that everything had been destroyed, reduced to soot and ash. The once tidy camp was now a dump. 155 personal propane tanks, food wrappers, cooking equipment, silverware, a sleeping bag, and pieces of a tent once secured by a padlock had all been burned. Also recovered was the tag from a charred pair of pants, size 30 by 30, also a few random European coins. Most notable among the trash, however, were 47 burnt soda cans of both Coca-Cola and Mountain Dew Code Red. At the time, police had no reason to believe this was anything more than a fire set by an inconsiderate homeless person who hated the environment, as the reeds hadn't yet been reported missing. But that same night, police encountered Mountain Dew Man for the first time at a different camp, and over the course of the next several days, they'd learned that the burnt camp was actually his first of many, and he may have actually just burnt the other one down to destroy potential evidence connected to a double murder. Investigators eventually realized that when they met the suspicious man in the woods, he more than likely had just set up camp in that new location after burning the old one to the ground. While connecting the dots, investigators confirmed that the burn camp was just 0.3 miles north of where Stephen and Wendy were killed. Once authorities began looking into recent sales of propane tanks over at that local Walmart, a different employee recalled a very specific customer who purchased them on the regular and in bulk. According to Walmart staff, the man was known to wear a black baseball cap, dark-colored sweatshirt, and a dark-colored bandana around his face. Hmm, that sounds a bit familiar. Detectives also visited a nearby Shaw's grocery store. After reviewing footage from the day of the murders, there he was again, Mountain Dew Man, caught on camera buying his favorite drink, along with a fresh rotisserie chicken. He exited the store at about 2.29 p.m., and he was carrying several plastic grocery bags and wearing that black leather baseball cap, along with the same dark-colored bandana over his face. The suspect was last seen on video that day walking through the Shaw's parking lot at 2.32, in the direction of the Altonwood Apartments complex where Stephen and Wendy Reed lived, directly adjacent to the Marsh Loop Trail. Additional footage from the Walmart also showed that at around 9.40 a.m. on April 19, 2022, the suspect was seen purchasing a new tent, sleeping bag, and a bottle of rubbing alcohol, less than 24 hours after Stephen and Wendy Reed were murdered. But unlike all of his other shopping trips, Mountain Dew Man wasn't wearing a face covering this time. Investigators theorized that this may have been due to the fact that he'd already burned his face coverings along with everything else he owned back at the other camp. On May 17, 2022, a police sketch of the suspect was released to the public. Another image released was that of a green Toyota RAV4, 
a vehicle that had been parked near the Marsh Loop Trail the day of the murders. However, this particular lead wound up being a dead end, as the person driving the vehicle was ultimately ruled out as a suspect. From August 25th through the 30th in 2022, authorities were still going through the burnt campsite with a fine-tooth comb, and did so several times. Though months after the killings, a sweep was conducted with a metal detector, During one of these later searches, investigators recovered another shell casing from a Sig Luger 9mm round, located where the Mountain Dew man's locked tent once stood. Fifteen feet away from the original shell casing, police found eight more, all Sig Luger 9mm. Authorities also noticed a clearing in the woods that, for whatever reason, hadn't been seen until now. It appeared to be a firing lane of sorts, not far from the camp, suggesting that the Mountain Dew man may have actually been taking target practice regularly. In the days that followed, an additional metal detector was introduced to the search, at which point investigators found 10 more shell casings, all marked with the Sig Luger 9mm emblem on the bottom. Based on all of these discoveries, investigators decided to visit the nearby crime scene yet again. So yeah, at this point, you're probably wondering, like we all are, Why the hell investigators are repeatedly searching the same areas, and yet finding new critical evidence with each search, even some four months after the killing? I'll just hold on a minute, we'll address that a bit later. But if all of this weren't peculiar enough, in the precise area where the reeds were shot that past April, three more shell casings were discovered, buried beneath eight to ten inches of dirt. As detectives continued to literally dig up physical evidence, more digital information was being excavated as well. Investigators were eventually able to obtain Mountain Dew Man's Walmart transaction records, which consisted of 12 separate purchases made from five separate prepaid cards, three of which were tied to Metabank payment systems, and two that were connected to Sutton Bank. These were essentially gift cards that could be reloaded with cash without ever having to open an actual bank account. A search warrant was soon executed on both cards, which eventually revealed two purchases had been made on December 8th and 9th back in 2021. It was an order from a website called BulkSupplements.com, an online vitamin store, and the items had been shipped to a Walgreens Pharmacy FedEx kiosk located on Loudon Road in Concord, New Hampshire, not far from Stephen and Wendy Reed's apartment. In September of 2022, detectives contacted the Bulk Supplements Company and provided the last four digits of the card used, as well as the purchase amounts. In turn, customer service was able to provide police with a name, and that name was not Arthur Kelly. Instead, the vitamin purchases were made by a man named Logan Clegg. Investigators finally had a real name, and they were one step closer to finding out the true identity of the now infamous New Hampshire legend, Mountain Dew Man. From the very beginning, authorities knew that there was no Arthur Kelly. That much was obvious. Logan Clegg, on the other hand, was a very real person with quite the checkered past. After running a background check, authorities learned that he was a 26-year-old man, born in Arizona on January 24, 1996, 
not January 27, 1992, like he had originally told police. Logan Clegg was an only child, and three years after he was born, his family up and moved to the mining town of Colville, Washington, where they resided through Logan's high school years. According to his friends, for the most part at least, Logan was a pretty normal kid. He wasn't popular by any means. He played trombone in the middle school band and also played baseball, video games, and was big into Star Wars. Though he apparently had a good sense of humor, he struggled socially. In fact, one former classmate remembered how he was often embarrassed in school. Even when engaging in regular conversation, his face would turn beet red. It was also hard to make out what Logan said much of the time. Whether he was in the class or in the hallway, his responses were often quiet and muffled under his breath. Already lacking in confidence, things only got worse for the antisocial young man when tragedy struck the Clegg family in the summer of 2008. On the morning of July 24th that year, Logan found his father dead in the backyard of their family home, the victim of an apparent suicide. However, police initially questioned whether or not this was in fact the true manner of death. Authorities began questioning the family, specifically the victim's 12-year-old son, Logan. According to those who knew him, it was around this time his behavior began to take a turn for the worse. Logan became extremely distant and closed off after his father died. His friends tried to be there for him during his time of need, but he wanted nothing to do with them. One man recalled a specific interaction between Logan and their friend group back then. One time he slammed the door on us and basically said, I want you to leave me alone. I don't want to hang out anymore. Before long, he became a ghost. Logan was physically present, but always in the background, especially during high school. From freshman to junior year, he coasted and barely got by with passing grades. In 2014, during the middle of his senior year, Logan abruptly dropped out and moved to Spokane, Washington. He eventually earned his GED from a community college in the city before returning back home to Colville. But when he got there, Logan refused to associate with any friends or family. Instead, he decided to camp outside in a tent in the Stevens County Fairgrounds. It was around this time he had his first run-in with the police as an adult. One day in February of 2017, Logan returned to his campsite to find all of his belongings were missing. Knowing there was a groundskeeper on the premises, Logan confronted the woman working there. She tried to tell him that his belongings were safe and that they'd just been moved to a storage unit. Logan became enraged and demanded his belongings be returned immediately, and because of his erratic behavior, the groundskeeper began calling 911. But just as she picked up the phone, Logan attempted to physically strip it from her hands. About a year later, he moved away from Colville, Washington, back to Spokane, and found employment as a custodian, working the night shift at a local McDonald's. During this brief period, Logan Clegg kept his nose clean. Despite being homeless, not only was Logan punctual, he'd often show up to work early. At the time, fellow employees said he was a pleasure to work with and never called out sick. His manager did say, however, that he drank a lot of Mountain Dew, something that held little significance back then, but certainly would years later in a New Hampshire double homicide investigation. 
Logan Clegg was always that shy and awkward guy from middle school, but harmless by all accounts. That is, until the evening of May 17th, 2018. That evening, surveillance footage from the McDonald's parking lot showed Logan Clegg arriving at work on foot. Early to his shift, his manager noticed that his hand was badly cut, an injury that definitely didn't occur in the kitchen. Logan's eyes were also extremely bloodshot, and his hair was wet and appeared to be stained red. Minutes later, he was captured on surveillance video standing near the fryers, tending to the open wound by wrapping a cloth around his hand to try and stop the bleeding. Given the severity of the cut, Logan's manager drove him to the hospital. On the way there, she asked what happened. Logan said that he was walking to work as per usual when he cut through an apartment complex parking lot as a shortcut. Suddenly, he explained a man began yelling at him from his window. He said the man accused him of tampering with his car while walking through the building's lot. Logan explained to his manager that the man proceeded to run out of his apartment, chase him down, tackle him, and began beating him with his fists. According to Logan, it was at this point he pulled out a pocket knife and began swinging the blade to ward off his attacker. Once the man backed down, Logan claimed he continued on his mile walk to work, through the woods until he arrived at the McDonald's. What Logan may or may not have known at the time was that as he was clocking in, The man he had just stabbed ten times was barely clinging to life. Immediately following this violent altercation, the victim, later identified as 28-year-old Corey Ward, began screaming for help. A neighbor called 911, but despite the quick response from paramedics, Corey was pronounced dead on the scene. Investigators with the Spokane Police soon recovered a leather knife sheath at the scene, as well as a cell phone. Eventually, authorities were made aware of Logan Clegg's involvement and subsequent medical status after his manager called 911. When detectives arrived at Holy Family Hospital where Logan was being treated for his flesh wound, he provided the same story that he gave to his manager. He said he only pulled the knife because the man was much bigger than him and he was in fear for his life. Following the attack, Logan said he watched Corey walk back toward his apartment complex. When authorities told him that the victim had died, Logan claimed he had no idea and that it was never his intention to kill anyone. He also said that he lost his phone during the attack so he couldn't call for help and was left no other option but to walk to work. Investigators asked Logan if they could search his phone, a request to which he agreed. It was ultimately determined that Logan Clegg and Corey Ward didn't even know each other. Based on the information Logan provided and the fact that there were no other witnesses, no charges were ever formally brought against him, and his actions were ruled to have been in self-defense. However, Logan Clegg skipped town before he was ever made aware that he wouldn't be prosecuted. Many of those closest to victim Corey Ward, on the other hand, believed he was murdered, including Corey's own mother, Lisa. Corey was uh, larger than life. He stabbed him ten times. Logan proceeded to work. He didn't stop to call 911. He didn't bang on the nearest door to say, 
I'm afraid for my life. I just, I remember shouting, you know, is my son alive? And he said that there had been a fatality. And I, not, not in my wildest dreams did I think it was gonna be Corey. And then they said his name and I just remember screaming. We only have Logan's side of the story and I'm not sure that that is the truth. Maybe it's Logan's truth, but I'm not sure it's what really happened. Due to the lack of evidence, Corey Ward's family chose to avoid any additional heartache and decided not to pursue further legal action. The strength of their case was questionable at best, as Corey Ward was unfortunately no longer alive to provide his version of what actually happened. Following his death, one of Corey's co-workers posted the following to Facebook. We are so devastated and broken-hearted by this senseless tragedy. Corey was so, so full of life and passion. If you connected with him, that was it. He was your loyal friend for life. He was making so many great choices to grow and make himself into the man he would be proud of. He was a great example to our younger crew on overcoming and choosing to move forward. He had endless integrity. Adding only more layers of tragedy to an already horrific event, Corey Ward had just found out he was a father the day before he was killed. The day before Corey was killed, he took a paternity test and the paternity test came back that he was the father of a child. As if this tragedy couldn't get any worse, the child's mother subsequently died as well, just three years after Corey was stabbed to death. Unfortunately, her mom died in July of 2021, and then we adopted her. So we are raising Natalie, and uh, she is just like her dad. (laughs) After killing a man in self-defense, Logan Clegg fled Spokane and relocated to Logan, Utah. But it wouldn't be long before he ran headlong into trouble with the law once again. On July 23, 2020, Clegg stole two firearms from a store called Al's Sporting Goods. During the incident, he pried open one of the doors after hours, smashed a display case, and then made off with a pair of CZ-75B handguns. He got away and took off for Salt Lake City, Utah, about 80 miles south of where the robbery occurred. Weeks later, in August of 2020, Clegg was arrested for shoplifting at a local Walmart. Police were called and the entire incident was recorded on body cam. Pull your hands out of your pockets for me, kid. Pull your hands out of your pockets, dude. Let's go. Pull your hands out. Don't be dumb. I got it. Don't be dumb. In the video, Logan Clegg can be seen refusing to take his hands from his pockets, at which point the officer does it for him before slapping on a pair of handcuffs. You're going to go into handcuffs right now because you wouldn't follow our commands to keep your hands out of your pockets? Which makes this worry. And it worries us, so we're going to make sure. It's a good thing the officer followed his training, because just moments after searching Logan Clegg's person, he found a loaded handgun tucked into his waistband. And that's why you pull your hands out, right? Because if we see that, that could have been super bad, bro. In the video, the suspect can be seen wearing a black ball cap, dark-colored sweatshirt, and dark-colored bandana. The footage then shows an officer stepping aside to clear the weapon by the shopping carts in the foyer of the building before engaging the safety and securing it as evidence. 
After being brought to a detention room inside of the Walmart, Logan Clegg was informed that the handgun on his person was stolen, one of the 45 caliber CZ-75Bs that he had stolen from the sporting goods store. Clegg was then taken outside to a police patrol car, where he was told he was being placed under arrest, at which point he began arguing his case. Despite claiming that he had purchased the weapon from a third party and that he was unaware it was stolen, Logan Clegg was escorted to jail. After arriving at the precinct, he continued to be even more uncooperative, calling the officers transporting him cowards. Shut up. (laughs) Now I'm a coward. Okay. Yeah, three on one, ambushing me at the door, putting me in handcuffs. called safety, and I'm glad that that was the case. How would you propose we do that differently? But you give me a if chance you to were pull it my, out so we can if fight you were in my, huh? If you were in my shoes, that's what you want? Yeah. Okay. Man to man. Okay. First off, you wouldn't stand any chance whatsoever. Good. Another die in prison. Okay. In the video, Logan Clegg can be heard saying that he wished he would have pulled his weapon, so the issue could have been handled, quote, one-on-one, though the body cam audio is edited. He also says he'd rather die than, quote, fucking go to prison, before calling the arresting officer a sack of shit. Clegg was booked and subsequently charged with a second-degree felony for possession of the stolen firearm. Shortly after, he posted bail and was released. But 19 days after the shoplifting incident at the SLC Walmart, police responded to another burglary in progress, this time at a residential property up north back in Logan, Utah. After attempting to break into someone's home and while running away from police, authorities eventually caught up with him. Logan Clegg was found with $2,300 in cash, several lockpicking tools, and the second stolen firearm from Al's sporting goods, which again was loaded. He was then arrested and taken into custody again on August 29, 2020. At his bond hearing in September of that year, the judge denied the state's request to remand Logan Clegg on no bond, and his bail was subsequently set to just $26,000, an amount Logan Clegg said he was unable to post. As a result, he remained in jail for a total of 72 days until his next court appearance, where he would soon face several felony charges for the string of robberies. Considering Logan Clegg's criminal history, he was looking at a potential prison sentence of 15 years. However, when his time came before a judge on November 9, 2020, he was shown great leniency and was sentenced to just 36 months of probation. The conditions of his release were that he had to attend court-mandated classes and to find gainful employment. He was also not allowed to possess any firearms or weapons and had to meet with his probation officer regularly. But if we've learned anything about Logan Clegg by now, it's that he's not one to follow the rules. After receiving yet another slap on the wrist, Clegg was once again off and running. Despite being on probation, on June 21, 2021, Clegg boarded a plane at O'Hare International Airport in Chicago and was headed for Portugal. However, this was no quick trip. Clegg's return trip wasn't scheduled for over four and a half months on November 7th. While he was out of the country, authorities learned that Logan also traveled through Germany and Iceland. 
Concord, New Hampshire authorities investigating the Reed's double homicide then remembered the euros discovered at the Mountain Dew Man's burnt campsite back in April of 2022. A month after he left the United States, an arrest warrant was issued for Logan Clegg on July 21, 2021, as a result of violating his probation in Utah. In November, when he finally landed back in Boston, Clegg decided to stay on the East Coast and not face the potential prison time for charges out of Utah. Instead, he traveled 70 miles north, which is how he ended up in Concord, New Hampshire. Upon arriving in the Granite State, the suspect got another job working as a McDonald's custodian. The restaurant was located on Loudon Road, about two miles from his soon-to-be favorite Walmart, as well as his various campsites off the Marsh Loop Trail. When Concord detectives contacted his former employer at the New Hampshire McDonald's, Management was provided two images, one of Mountain Dew Man from the surveillance video cameras, as well as an old booking photo of Logan Clegg from his crime spree in Utah. The suspect's former employer was able to confirm that the man seen in both images was in fact Logan Clegg. The manager said that while he was working at the New Hampshire McDonald's, Clegg appeared to be homeless and was living out of a backpack. Detectives also learned that on his application, Clegg provided an email address, rkxkelly at gmail.com, which was also the same email used to purchase vitamins from bulksupplements.com, addressed to none other than Arthur Kelly. Another thing investigators took note of was that Clegg's second stint at McDonald's appeared to be vastly different from his first in Washington State roughly four years before. In Spokane, he was described as kind by the people he worked with, but in Concord, not so much. In New Hampshire, Clegg was said to have, quote, anger issues, and even told some of his fellow employees that the reason he was quitting was because they didn't know how to do their jobs. Investigators learned that Clegg left McDonald's on Loudon Road in February of 2022, after claiming he'd found another job. Just a few days after he quit, Detectives learned he traveled to Barry, Vermont, where he visited R&L Archery, an indoor shooting range and pro shop. The store's owner eventually told investigators that the man fitting Logan Clegg's description had previously used a Vermont state license to purchase a gun. The ID used in the sale was issued under the name Arthur Kelly. By all accounts, the gun store didn't do much other than run the name. After scanning his ID, an error message even popped up that read, Not on file. Despite the error, the gun shop proceeded with the sale regardless, and after paying for the gun in cash, the man who was soon to become a suspect in a double homicide just a few months later walked right out of that store in Vermont with a brand new Glock 17 and three boxes of ammunition to go with it. On October 3, 2022, Detectives in Concord, New Hampshire, received subpoenaed records they'd previously requested from the Greyhound Bus Company. And while there were no bus tickets purchased by a Logan Clegg on file, there was one issued to another familiar name, Arthur Kelly. This bus ticket from Boston to Burlington, Vermont, was purchased on May 15, 2022, roughly one month after the Reeds were killed. Concord detectives then received a tip from law enforcement with the Logan City Police Department 
over 2,300 miles west in Utah. And on October 11, 2022, New Hampshire investigators were informed that Logan Clegg had just booked a one-way plane ticket from JFK in New York to Berlin, Germany. The suspect made attempts to disguise the origin of his flight purchase, but failed miserably. The booking information he used the email, firstpeterblack at gmail.com, yet another fake alias. His flight was set to take off on October the 14th, just three days from the time this information was first received. Authorities immediately began working with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, desperately trying to locate Logan Clegg before he could flee the country. The address on his plane ticket ironically came back to a federal courthouse in Burlington, Vermont. But there was also a phone number listed in the transaction record, one linked to a track phone that could be purchased at any major department store, like, say, a Walmart, for example. While harder to trace, track phones still utilize cell phone towers from one of the biggest carriers in the world, Verizon, something most criminals aren't aware of. After submitting an emergency data request, Verizon was able to identify and track the GPS coordinates linked to the track phone used to purchase Clegg's airfare. The GPS coordinates of that track phone showed his location in real time every 15 minutes. On the evening of October 11, 2022, the phone pinged on a hiking trail near the Centennial Woods in Burlington, Vermont. This 3.8-mile walking path was extremely similar to the Marsh Loop Trail, where the double homicide took place 140 miles south in Concord just six months before. The following day, on October 12, 2022, investigators took notice of a particular outgoing call made from the suspect's track phone. The number came back to a female resident of Burlington, Vermont. Records indicated that this individual worked at a grocery store called Price Chopper in the very same city. And lo and behold, later on that morning, Logan Clegg's phone pinged at the very same Price Chopper grocery store. Detectives in Concord immediately contacted Burlington police to send out local units. They were zeroing in, and authorities began actively surveilling the Price Chopper in search of Logan Clegg. At 9.33 that morning, they finally had eyes on their man for the very first time since he fled Concord. The man matching Mountain Dew Man's description was working at the Price Chopper grocery store, and apparently had been for the past five months. Authorities didn't let him out of their sight. From a distance, they watched as Logan Clegg hugged several employees from the store. An undercover detective wearing civilian clothes went inside and heard Clegg's co-workers saying they were going to miss him, indicating that he was going somewhere far away and that they may never see him again. In a covert mission, detectives tailed Logan Clegg as he exited the grocery store and traveled to a nearby public library in South Burlington, roughly a half mile away. Once in position, dramatic body cam footage shows the authorities with the South Burlington Police and Vermont State Police enter that library. With weapons drawn, they make their way to the second floor, looking for Logan Clegg. A few moments later, they found him, quietly sitting at a table, 
minding his own business and typing away on his laptop. Police finally had their suspect in custody. And as he was being placed in handcuffs, another man sitting directly behind the officers panicked at the sight of several long guns. Certainly not something you'd expect to see at the public library in Vermont. Officers assured the shaken man that everything was under control. And while trying to calm the bystander, Logan Clegg began asking why he was being arrested. What have I done? Carrie Schweitzer in custody. Logan Clegg can be seen on the body cam footage wearing his favorite black leather baseball cap. He was also in possession of a black backpack. At approximately 1.10 p.m. that Wednesday afternoon, Logan Clegg was escorted out of the library and brought to the South Burlington Police Department for questioning. Investigators now had their one and only suspect in the New Hampshire double homicide sitting right in front of them in a South Burlington interrogation room but they still needed him to talk. Authorities from Concord in New Hampshire had already traveled to South Burlington to speak with the 26-year-old drifter Logan Clegg. And at the start of his interview, Clegg was read his Miranda rights, acknowledged that he understood them, and agreed to speak with a detective. It was at this point he was asked about his ties to Concord and where exactly he resided while living there. Clegg responded by saying that he stayed on the south side of Loudon Road by the power lines under a tarp he'd fashioned into a makeshift shelter, but said that was a long time ago. He said the last time he was in Concord was when he quit his job at the McDonald's in February of 2022, at which point he claimed to take a Greyhound bus from Boston to Burlington. When asked how he survived the cold New England winters, he said he ate mostly food from a nearby Shaw's or Hannah Ford's grocery store. When asked what he knew about the broken ground trail system and the Marsh Loop specifically, Clegg said he never once stayed in those woods and denied ever living in a tent and said he never purchased propane tanks from Walmart. He also said that he never encountered Concord police until now, explaining that he never owned any guns while living in New Hampshire. Clegg did admit, however, to visiting the local Walmart a few times while there, but he said he didn't like to visit the store because they weren't known to serve hot food. The detective eventually got around to asking Logan if he'd ever heard the name Arthur Kelly, to which he said he had not. When asked about Stephen and Wendy Reed, Clegg said he never heard of them either, claiming he wasn't the type of guy to follow the local news. The detective then began presenting evidence suggesting that Clegg wasn't telling the truth, including the countless connections between Arthur Kelly and Logan Clegg, like his online purchases, and that surveillance footage, specifically from the Walmart, the day after the murder, when he was seen without a face covering purchasing a tent. Logan Clegg, of course, denied that it was him in the video, claiming to the authorities that they simply had the wrong guy but he was also confronted with the Greyhound ticket purchased back in May, a month after the Reeds were killed, the one from Boston to Vermont, at which point Clegg seemed to become irritated. His responses soon turned sarcastic. When asked if he could guess the name the ticket was purchased under, Clegg snickered and said, <laughs> Arthur Kelly, under his breath. Throughout the interview, Clegg spoke the same way he did to his peers back in high school, 
some of the phrases he repeated almost inaudibly were things such as, quote, I don't know what to tell you, followed by accusatory statements suggesting the detective was simply making things up. When he was flat out asked if he killed Stephen and Wendy Reed, Clegg responded simply by stating no. Eventually, he decided he'd had enough and stated something to the effect of, I just want to be done with this. Uh, I don't want to talk about this anymore. At this point, the detective stopped inquiring about the homicides, but continued asking Logan Clegg questions. He asked him if he wanted something to eat, suggesting a rotisserie chicken of all things. Again, the rotisserie chicken was an item Clegg purchased at the Concord Shaw's on April 18th, less than a half hour before the murders took place. Needless to say, Clegg declined the food offering. While the interview technically should have already ended by now, the detective carried on regardless. Clegg was eventually informed that the clothing he was wearing needed to be collected as evidence. The detective offered to get him something else to wear that wasn't a police-issued Tyvek suit. When he was asked what his pant size was, Clegg responded, 30-inch waist by a 30-inch length, which, as we know, was the very same pant size on the burnt tag recovered at Mountain Dew Man's first campsite. Sometime later, a couple other detectives entered the room with some newly purchased clothing for Clegg. He was allowed to change and handed over his old attire to police. The clothes were then placed into a paper bag and stored in a nearby evidence locker. Following just over an hour of questioning, authorities informed Logan Clegg that he was officially being placed under arrest as a fugitive from justice, relating to his charges out of the state of Utah. While Logan Clegg was behind bars in Vermont, detectives worked to secure search warrants for his most recent camp at the Centennial Woods in Burlington, as well as the items found on his person at the library, which included his laptop computer. Recovered from his latest camp was an Ozark tent, a camouflage tarp, and multiple empty bottles of what else but Mountain Dew. Inside the tent, authorities found a sleeping bag, two boxes of Sig Luger 9mm ammunition, gun cleaning materials, earplugs, additional magazines for a Glock 17 handgun, and a package that had been sent via USPS with the name and address crossed out. Still visible, however, was the person it was addressed to, Arthur Kelly. After searching Clegg's backpack, investigators found one black Nokia flip phone, a package from USPS with the name Logan written on the address and the name Kelly written on the side. They also found an envelope postmarked from the United Kingdom containing a fake Romanian passport with Clegg's photograph, but that was issued to a Claude Zemo. An additional U.S. passport was also found in the bag, which appeared to be Logan Clegg's actual valid identification. The last two significant items discovered were two gift cards, approximately $7,150 in cash, and one Glock 17 handgun, fully loaded with SIG 9mm ammunition. On October 13, 2020, Logan Clegg was arraigned for his charges out of Utah. His attorney argued that a bond amount be set regardless. There is no legal basis to hold him without bail at this point. 
Well, except he's a fugitive. That is a pretty strong basis. The judge ultimately ruled that the defendant remained held with no bond. The following day, the Glock 17 found in Logan Clegg's backpack was sent to the New Hampshire State Police Forensic Lab, where several ballistics tests were run on it. The bullet fragments recovered from the original crime scene, bullet fragments from the autopsies, shell casings, and the live ammunition found at Clegg's most recent Vermont campsite were all compared, and these tests ultimately concluded that all of the rounds in question had more than likely, but not definitively, been fired from the same gun. Whether or not it was Logan Clegg's Glock 17 was something a jury would ultimately have to decide. While Clegg was being held on the fugitive warrant out of Utah, his attorneys fought for his temporary release. They argued that his detention was unlawful and represented a clear violation of his constitutional rights, considering Clegg had not yet been charged with murder. His attorneys filed an appeal. Originally, the request for another bail hearing was denied, but within a few hours, a Vermont Superior Court judge overturned that decision and Logan Clegg was granted that hearing. With that being said, the new hearing didn't do him much good. The judge ultimately rejected Clegg's request for bond, and he was to remain in jail until his next court appearance. Coincidentally, that very same day, a warrant was signed by another judge, this time for murder. On Tuesday, October 18, 2022, Logan Clegg was officially charged with two counts of second-degree murder, for the deaths of Stephen and Wendy Reed. Right now, it's unclear if there's a connection between Clegg and the Reeds. Investigators have not commented on a possible motive. The Concord Police Department says it continues to investigate the circumstances surrounding the murders of Stephen and Wendy Reed. Apparently, stealing purses and wallets from people was one of Logan Clegg's main means of survival over the years. Aside from living in tents, he allegedly squatted in abandoned buildings as well, and slept in a rundown radiator factory at one point. Following his arrest in New Hampshire, authorities spoke to a local news outlet, explaining how Logan Clegg was able to maintain such a low profile for so long. There's got to be friends or family somewhere, but it would seem to me that he had probably worn out his welcome because of his behavior and the things that he was doing and was truly on his own. On October 20th, 2022, Logan Clegg was arraigned in the Chittenden Superior Court in Vermont and waived his extradition. Five days later, he arrived back in Concord, New Hampshire, where he waived his arraignment and pleaded not guilty to all charges. His trial was originally set for July of 2023, but was inevitably pushed back to October of that year. Meanwhile, Logan Clegg remained in custody at the Merrimack County Jail in Boscoen, New Hampshire. In May of 2023, Clegg was indicted by a grand jury on even more charges, including four counts of falsifying and destroying evidence, unlawful possession of a firearm by a felon, and two additional counts of second-degree murder, two for knowingly killing Stephen and Wendy Reed, and two for recklessly doing so. The falsifying evidence charges came after forensic testing confirmed Clegg attempted to scrub his laptop data following the murders. In turn, Logan Clegg's defense requested a motions hearing to suppress two specific pieces of evidence, the cell phone data which effectively led to Clegg's arrest, 
and statements he made to authorities immediately thereafter. At a hearing held on May 24, 2023, Clegg's defense attorneys argued that the cell phone data pulled by detectives was done so without a proper warrant. They also argued that Logan Clegg informed police he wanted an attorney following his arrest, and yet the detective continued questioning him anyways, citing this as a clear violation of his constitutional rights. The motions hearing lasted three days and took roughly two weeks for the judge to make a ruling. In regards to that cell phone data, the court sided with the prosecution, stating that Logan Clegg was actively preparing to flee the country, as indicated by the plane ticket purchase to Berlin. Therefore, pulling the cell phone records was deemed justifiable, given the fact that he was a fugitive out of Utah. In relation to the statements he made, the judge sided, however, with the defense, deciding that some of what Logan Clegg said to police would be suppressed at his eventual trial, as he did invoke his right to legal counsel prior to answering certain questions. At another evidence hearing held in September, a judge ruled that the police sketch, as well as the ballistics test results, would in fact both be admissible in court. A month later, on Monday, October 2nd, 2023, a jury of nine women and seven men was selected. Jury selection began today for the man arrested in South Burlington last year and charged with the murder of a New Hampshire couple. Logan Clegg faces two counts of second-degree murder in the deaths of Stephen and Wendy Reed. Clegg is pleading not guilty. The trial is expected to take several weeks. The state's witness list includes 89 names, although not all of them may be called. Opening statements are tomorrow morning, then the jury will be taken on a viewing of the murder scene as well as other locations throughout Concord. On day one of the trial, the defense admitted that Logan Clegg was a criminal, but they claimed he was not a murderer. They argued that the reason he burnt his former tent site, fled Concord and evaded police was not because he killed anyone but because he was wanted as a fugitive from justice for a probation violation out of Utah. They argued that the Utah offenses were the same reason Clegg planned to flee the country, not because he killed the Reeds. According to his defense attorneys, he was simply a drifter, someone who rejected society and had fallen estranged from his family. Logan Clegg had no connection to the victims, he didn't know Stephen or Wendy Reed and therefore had no motive to kill them. The defense asked the jury to consider why a man who had just purchased a warm meal and a bottle of Mountain Dew Code Red would then walk directly across the street into the woods and murder a random couple just a half hour later. He did not then leave Shaw's with his rotisserie chicken and Mountain Dew to murder people he did not know. He did not then rush with his rotisserie chicken up to Marsh Loop Trail to lay in wait for people he had no connection to. Clegg's attorneys told the jury that he was a hard worker and that the more than $7,000 in cash found in his backpack was money he had saved from working at the Price Chopper grocery store. They also brought up the fact that police returned the money to him following his arrest aside from a few $50 bills that appeared to have blood on them. Clegg also gave his two weeks' notice at the Price Chopper in Vermont. His attorneys argued this was behavior uncharacteristic of someone who had committed a double murder and was looking to get out of Dodge. 
As far as the prosecution goes, the state eventually revealed that after the murders, Logan Clegg conducted a fresh start on his laptop and wiped his computer's entire browsing history. However, some of his Google searches were eventually recovered by digital forensics experts. The morning of his arrest, the defendant Googled Concord, New Hampshire News. As he was preparing to leave the country, to leave forever, he was checking on the investigation. He wanted to make sure that no one had caught him and no one would find out that he had murdered Stephen and Wendy. Other Google searches Clegg made the day of his arrest included Are Knives Illegal in Europe? and Do Verizon Stores Sell Unlocked Phones? The jury was also informed that on April 21st, 2022, another Greyhound bus ticket was purchased at 11.30 a.m. The morning after, police confronted Logan Clegg in the woods and three days after the murders. Claude Zemo, Peter Black, and Arthur Kelly were all fake aliases Logan Clegg was known to use. However, the name he used to book this particular bus ticket was a new one, Denton Kelly. Digital evidence showed that Logan Clegg boarded a bus to Portland, Maine at 9 a.m. on Friday, April 22, 2022, before later fleeing to Vermont. In terms of motive, the prosecution reminded the jury that they weren't legally obligated to present one. Instead, their ability to construct a timeline using surveillance footage and cell phone data to track Logan Clegg's movements wound up being one of the many pillars in which their entire case was built on. The hiker who claimed to see the reeds just moments before they were killed testified for the state. On the stand, she explained how she first encountered Stephen and Wendy on the Marsh Loop Trail, and politely let them pass her and her dogs. She then explained hearing what she thought were five gunshots, even though collectively the Reeds had been shot a total of six times. The witness claimed the gunshots didn't sound like they came from a rifle, but instead some type of handgun. Minutes later is when she says she came across the suspicious man there on the trail, the man the state alleged to be Logan Clegg. Forensics specialists testified as well, corroborating the hiker's testimony in regards to the timeline, with data extracted from her iPhone and Apple Watch, which she was wearing during her hike on the day of the murders. A map of the Marsh Loop Trail, along with screenshots of the hiker's fitness tracker app, were then presented to the jury. The data showed that from the time she allegedly heard the shots at 2.54 p.m. to the time she encountered the man in the woods at 2.59 this would mean that the man she witnessed would have had five minutes to drag both bodies off the trail before the hiker could catch up to him and see what was going on. Before stepping down from the stand, the hiker told the jury that once a neighbor showed her a photo of Stephen and Wendy Reed in the newspaper following the murders, there was no doubt in her mind that it was the Reed couple she passed that day on the trail. There was a picture in the article, and yes, it was absolutely the couple that I had seen. Despite this compelling testimony, the prosecution still faced their fair share of hurdles. For one, the woman walking her dogs specified the wrong number of shots were fired when the reeds were killed. Secondly, she testified that the man on the trail was wearing khaki-colored pants, but Logan Clegg was last seen leaving the Shaws headed toward the woods wearing black pants on the day of the murders. Did the hiker actually see Logan Clegg, or could it have been someone else? In relation to DNA evidence collected at the crime scene and from the victim's bodies, all of it came back inconclusive regarding any ties to the defendant. 
The state argued that this was due to the elements, as it had rained days before the bodies were found. In regards to the white powder found on the leaves covering the victims' bodies, a forensic chemist testified confirming that the substance was baking soda, more than likely applied by the killer to mask the smell of human decomposition. At Logan Clegg's Vermont campsite following his arrest, a bottle of baking soda was discovered there among his possessions. A ballistics expert testified as well, expressing her professional opinion that the bullet fragments found during the autopsies at the crime scene and the other various woodland sites were all consistent with rounds belonging to a 9mm weapon, such as the defendant's Glock 17. In some cases, I could see that they were 9mm and the ones that weren't too damaged, and the bullets that weren't too damaged, um, and the Glock is 9mm. In some of the bullets that weren't damaged enough, I could see that it shared the same type of rifling, that polygonal rifling, and the same number of lands and grooves. Though it was possible, and even likely, on cross-examination, the firearms expert could not conclusively say whether or not Logan Clegg's gun was in fact the murder weapon. My results of that comparison were inconclusive, so they had the same class characteristics, but just not enough of the individual. There was no individual characteristics for me to make any kind of concrete determination. The controversy over ammunition and shell casings was arguably the turning point in this case. Reasonable doubt presented by the defense included questions regarding why certain ballistics evidence was not discovered during the early searches, but somehow shell casings appeared in the woods months later. They are looking everywhere, and they're specifically looking for evidence of bullets or casings that would be right there on top of the ground. Nothing. No casings were found. Regarding the two casings that were found in May, Clegg's attorneys even went as far as suggesting that somebody may have planted them there. The state's response to this argument was that the evidence was there all along, but mixed in amongst the leaves and brush had simply been missed, not only by police, but by the defendant as well. He tried to cover his tracks and clean up the crime scene. Just like the police didn't see them, Logan Clegg missed them. They would have you believe that someone planted those shell casings in those spots on the Marsh Loop Trail. Ask yourself, does that make any sense at all? The prosecution alleged that after Logan Clegg shot and killed the Reeds, he returned to the crime scene to recover four of the six spent shell casings. The very same casings a male witness reported seeing on the ground the day of the murders while out hiking on the trail, suggesting perhaps Logan Clegg accidentally left two behind. After roughly three weeks of considering an exhaustive amount of evidence, the jury was left to deliberate. And on October 23, 2023, a verdict was reached. Charging the defendant in that he knowingly caused the death of Stephen Reed by shooting him with a gun. Do you find the defendant guilty or not guilty? Guilty. Charging the defendant, Logan Clegg, with recklessly causing the death of just Wendy Reed. Do you find the defendant guilty or not guilty? Guilty. 27-year-old Logan Clegg was found guilty on all charges, including four counts of second-degree murder for the shooting death of 67-year-old Stephen Reed and his wife, 66-year-old Jeswendy Reed. On Logan Clegg's old probation paperwork from 2020, he listed both of his parents as being deceased. 
However, records show that his mother is actually alive and well and, ironically, is a paralegal of all things. It's unclear if she or any of the defendant's family watched remotely or otherwise as the guilty verdict was read aloud in court, but the chances of that are unlikely. In the eyes of the court, Logan Clegg killed three people that we know about, Corey Ward in Spokane, Washington, and Stephen and Wendy Reed in Concord, New Hampshire, four years later. There's still much speculation out there regarding whether or not Logan Clegg had anything to do with his father's death, which was ruled the result of suicide, but investigated under suspicious circumstances back in 2008. Any involvement the now-convicted killer may have had in Randall Clegg's death remains to be seen, as does a motive in the Reed murders. A man named Lewis, a longtime friend of both Stephen and Wendy Reed, struggles to this day trying to rationalize how and why all of this has happened. Why he would target these two people in the woods and uh, in Concord, New Hampshire is still a big mystery and probably I'm very likely one that we'll never find out about. They were uh, really wonderful people. If anything should be taken away from the list of these countless tragedies, it's the good Stephen and Wendy Reed did with their time on Earth. Their contributions and humanitarian efforts were quite literally felt worldwide. They deserve to be remembered in that way, rather than the awful manner in which they were killed. At the time of releasing this episode, Logan Clegg is currently awaiting sentencing. He is scheduled to be back in court on December 15th, 2023. And though I suppose just about anything is possible, I highly doubt they have rotisserie chicken and Mountain Dew night in lockup. 